about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Thanks for reading. Hello, everyone. Uh, as Andrew said, I'm Tom. Uh, sorry I haven't met uh, most of you, I'd say. Um, I've really hoped to come along to the evening, but uh, we have three young kids, and they don't let us do much. So, you know, <laughs> it can be hard. Why don't I pray and uh, ask for God's help as we, as we come to consider his word? Loving Father, we thank you that you speak to us and have spoken to us tonight in your word. We ask, Lord, that as we hear your word, we wouldn't harden our hearts, but rather we would turn here, believe and be healed. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, well, the question I want us to think about tonight is how can we grow in godliness? Uh, with the beginning of spring coming, end of winter I'm sort of just getting over the cold that lasted about three months. Um, I'm starting to think, you know what, it'd be really good if I got fit. Uh, I think I'm probably one of the least fit people that I know. I was uh, playing with my little niece uh, and my son yesterday and we were kicking a ball around and I was desperately needing a break but they weren't giving me a break and I thought, you know, this is, this is the right time. The sun is out, let's get fit. And of course, one of the best ways to try and get fit uh, is to join a gym. Uh, we live at the top of Newtown, right uh, near Sydney Uni, uh, so I've got no excuse, really. You know, one of the best gyms that you can join, cardio weights, pools, squash courts, rock climbing wall. I mean, you can imagine me doing all of those things. You know, I'd be right into it. Um, I've got no excuse. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, though, that when I go to sign up for the gym, uh, the person who takes me there and takes me on a bit of a tour of the gym, and as I go around, to my surprise, no one is working out. Okay, so I go to the cardio room, treadmills, everyone's just kind of hanging around, sitting, watching the music videos. No one's actually got the treadmill going. Uh, or, you know, you go to the weights room, all these massive guys just sitting around eating protein bars. Or you go to the yoga studio, everyone's just taking a nice, pleasant nap on their yoga mats. Now, if you went to a gym like that, you'd think, hang on, something's wrong here. Okay, something's wrong, because the whole point of a gym is that you work out, right? And whatever else you might be doing at a gym, if you're not working out, you're probably doing it wrong. And the reason I bring this up is because I think in the same way, we should understand our purpose as Christians as people who grow in godliness. That's our purpose, that we are people who grow in godliness. Now, what do we mean by godliness? I think often when we think about the word godliness, we can think of being good, being a good person, 
uh, being a very moral person. And of course, that's involved in godliness. But I think when we think about godliness, the key word in that word is God. Okay? And godliness really is about being God-oriented. It's about having my life completely shaped by God. To be a godly person is to be a person who lives for God, is to be a person who seeks God, who obeys God, who worships God, who honours God, who, who gives God their whole life, and their whole life has been turned around and orbits around God. And this is really the purpose, the heart, of what it means for us to be Christians, that we would be godly. Uh, Paul writes this letter to Titus, this, uh, th- this passage that we've read, it's, been, it's from one of the letters of Paul in the book of Titus, and he writes this letter because he wants Titus to establish good leaders in the churches uh, on the island of Crete. And as you read through this letter, if you've read it before, you, you'd know that Paul's main focus here is all about godliness. He wants people to have that God-oriented life where they're living for God, where they're living in obedience to God. So right at the start of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, this is what Paul says. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. so, So what does Paul want for his church? He wants them to grow in faith. He wants them to grow in knowledge, but but not just so that they would have faith. Not just so that they would have knowledge. No, it's, it's meant to lead somewhere. It's meant to go somewhere. And that somewhere is godliness. That's Paul's goal for these churches. And you really, you, you really pick this up as you read through the letter. So later on in chapter 1, Paul gives this long list of qualifications that he wants for leaders of the church. I wonder if you've read those lists before. One of the most surprising things about this list is that they are almost all about godly character. Have you noticed that before? Almost all about godly character. Now, why is that? Why does Paul focus so much on that? Why is that so important? Well, because if you want a church full of godly people, then it makes sense that you make sure that your leaders are godly people first. This is what Paul is focused on. Paul wants churches that are godly. That is his great desire. That is his beating heart. And that's God's beating heart for his church as well. I wonder if if that's your burning passion for this congregation here, for, for church in the graveyard. Of all the things that you might want for this church, is one of them that this is a deeply godly church. A group of people that so love the Lord, and obey the Lord and follow the Lord, that their whole lives are oriented around him. Is that your passion for this church? Is that your passion for your life? Well, in this passage, Paul outlines for us how we can grow in godliness, how we can do this as a church, how we can do this in our life. And like any good workout at the gym, I hear, uh, there are, you know, we, we see these three aspects of godliness that I want to draw out, and I think it's, it's a little bit like the gym. So, first of all, we're going to meet our trainer. Uh, then we're going to follow a workout plan, and finally we're going to talk about focusing on the goal. Okay, so how can we grow in godliness? First of all, let's meet our trainer. 
Uh, Have a look with me at verse 11 here. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Now we'll come to that second bit in just a moment. But I want you to notice, first of all, what Paul says is the thing that teaches us to be godly. Now that word there, uh, teach, it's, it's, a, it's a very practical word that's used. Trains may even be a good word for this. It's, it's the same word that's used for raising children. It actually comes from the word for child in the Greek. And, and Paul says here that ju- just as a parent raises a child and trains them in how to live, so the grace of God that has appeared trains us in godliness. So what is it that trains us? Well, it's the grace of God. But, but what's that talking about? Well, I don't think Paul's talking about just generally grace. No, he's talking about something very specific, very concrete, because he talks about the grace of God that has appeared. This is a grace that, that has come to us, come to us even in the flesh. The grace that Paul is talking about is Jesus. The grace of God that has appeared and that offers salvation to all people. What is the grace that teaches us to be godly? It's the gospel. It's the message about Jesus who came into our world, who died on the cross for our sin, who rose again from the dead. This message, this gospel, this grace for us, by which we can be saved, this is what trains us to be godly. And I want to pause here because I think there are, this actually clears up really in a really helpful way, two misconceptions that we often can have as Christians. The first is the belief that I need to be godly in order to be saved. Okay, you, you, you've probably heard that before, or maybe you've thought that before. You know, people who think, if I'm religious enough, you know, I, I come to church in the graveyard at night, um, maybe, I, maybe I even serve, help out Megan at kids' church, wouldn't that be great if I do... Great thing to do, by the way. Please do do that. But, you know, if I do all of these things, well, then God will accept me. Or maybe they think, if I'm nice enough, you know, if I'm nice enough, if, if I'm kind to people at the office, if I help others out, if I, if I take part in charity, well, then God will look at me and go, you know what, you're not too bad. You're actually pretty nice. You're in. I accept you. I'm going to save you. But did you notice what the passage said? It's not godliness that comes first, it's grace. The grace of God that has appeared. God doesn't accept us because we're godly. No, we're godly because of God's grace. Because he has accepted us. Because he has saved us. And did you notice what Paul says here? It is a salvation that is on offer to all people doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you've come from, doesn't matter what you've done in your life, Jesus has come to die for you and he offers salvation to all. That includes you, no matter who you are, no matter how godly or ungodly you might be, the offer of salvation is there for you. And so I want us to see, first of all, that Before godliness comes grace. Before uh, before service comes salvation. But 
This raises a second misconception that we can often have about grace, and I wonder if those amongst us here today, it's the one that we're more likely to think. And that is, some people can think, because of God's grace, I don't need to be godly. I once heard of a bumper sticker that said, Jesus paid for our sins, so let's get our money's worth. Now, you know, it's kind of a bit funny at first until you realise what a horrible thing it actually is to say, isn't it? But this idea, I think, is something that we all entertain. The idea that, well, if God's going to forgive me anyway, does it really matter? Does it really matter what I do? Okay, maybe, maybe this is wrong and I shouldn't do it, but God will forgive me, God's gracious. I've all, I'm already saved, so does it really matter if I'm godly? Now, I don't think any of us would say that out loud. I don't think any of us would even think that genuinely. But what about practically? What about in the way that you live your life? Do we not care about godliness because in the back of our head, we think, well, I'm going to be forgiven anyway. So. And what Paul says is, no. No, that's not right. In fact, it's the opposite. The grace of God that has appeared, that offers salvation for all, it shouldn't teach you to be ungodly. No, it actually, it teaches you, it trains you to be godly. It is what will actually help you to become a godly person, a God-oriented person. The grace of God. So how does that work? How does the grace of God actually help you to grow in godliness? Well, first of all, it trains you, it teaches you to love Jesus, to want to live for Jesus, to put Jesus first in your life. When you see the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that he has died for you, that he's loved you, teaches you to love him. And whoever loves Jesus obeys Jesus. And so it is the grace of God, the love of Jesus, that actually makes you want to turn and follow him in the first place. The second thing is, is that it trains you to hate sin. The grace of God, it, it teaches you that sin is not this really good thing that I really want to do, but I'm not allowed to because I'm a Christian. No. Sin is an evil and wicked thing. Sin is the thing that's messing up our world. Sin is the thing that's messing up relationships in our lives. Sin is the thing that's, that's making a mess of my life. And sin is the thing that put Jesus on the cross. That's how seriously God takes sin. You see, the grace of God, it teaches me to, to love Jesus and to hate sin. Uh, we've been doing at church the series uh, on Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. You've been doing that here in the evening as well? Yeah, great. You've been going through Genesis. I've really been enjoying it, and um, one of the things that I've noticed as we've been going through and reading you know, the account of Adam and Eve is how wrong Adam and Eve get it on both God and sin. And I've also been reflecting on how easy it is for us to be just like Adam and Eve. So, so think about it for a second. When they ate the fruit, what did they stop believing about God? They stopped believing it was good. They stopped believing that he loved them and that he was for them and that he had their best interests at heart. I mean, that was the lie of the devil, wasn't it? Oh, God's just holding out on you. He doesn't want you to enjoy all the good things that are here. He doesn't want you to be like him and to have the knowledge that comes from this fruit. Go on, eat. 
God is bad and this is good. So that's the lie that we believe, that God is not good. He's not for us. What's the other lie that Adam and Eve believed? Well, it was that sin was good. Now they look at the fruit and they think, this is pleasing to the eye. This is good for food. Their eyes longed for it. They lusted after it. They reached out and took it. They were tempted by it. Why? Because they thought this is good and God is bad. Friends, I think we can so easily fall into that trap as well, can't we? You know, where we think that godliness, the call to live a God-oriented life, it's, it's not something I want to do. It's just something I have to do because I'm a Christian and half the time I'm doing it through gritted teeth. And sometimes we can feel like sin, that's the thing I really want to do. But it's the thing I'm not allowed to do. But I'd probably do it anyway. And the moment we start thinking like that, you know, we start to think of God as just that mean school teacher who wouldn't let you play cricket at lunch. Or, or worse, that that cruel and capricious tyrant who wants to cause you pain. And we think of sin as this wonderful thing that God's keeping from us. But then the grace of God appears. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And it fundamentally changes that view Because Jesus, when he comes down to earth and he dies on the cross for your sin, he reveals the lie of the devil. Because he shows that God is for you, not against you. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. You can trust him with your life. And the grace of God, well, it shows how evil and destructive sin is as we see Jesus dying on the cross. And it makes us want to be rescued, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the presence of sin in my life. To hate that sin in my life. And to want God to rescue me from it. So the first thing we see is that the grace of God, it teaches us to be godly. Well, that's our trainer, the grace of God. What about our workout plan? And uh, like any good workout plan, it needs to be simple in order that you can follow it. And so we've got a really simple workout plan for godliness here tonight. Here it is. Say no and say yes. Uh, Someone this morning asked me if I was making a political statement from that. I'm not, I assure you. Okay, nothing nothing to do with the vote. Um, Completely about godliness. But But what we do see in this passage is that godliness is about saying no and saying yes. So have a look at verse 12. The grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, the Bible uses lots of different language uh, to describe godliness, you know, repenting and believing, putting off sin, putting on Christ, stop loving the world, start loving the Father, Turn from sin, practice righteousness, put to death the deeds of the flesh, walk in the, fr- uh, walk in the Spirit or produce the fruit of the Spirit, deny yourself, take up your cross. 
Have you noticed they've all got the same idea? Something's got to go and something needs to be replaced by it. And here, Paul's saying the same thing. Godliness, it means saying no to some things in our life and saying yes to what God is saying that we should do. So first of all, say no. Paul says, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, ungodliness, opposite of godly, it means living in a way that God doesn't want you to. Not living a life that's oriented to God. Worldly passions, it describes the deep desires or longings of our heart that are against what God wants. Our sinful desires. And together, these these words, they, they describe both the things that we do and the desires that we have that are opposed to God. And Paul says that the grace of God teaches us to say no to those things. I wonder if you notice how radically different that is uh, from the way that people around you probably think. You know, from a very young age, we're told to say yes to ourselves all the time. That we should be what we want to be, live how we want to live, and don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. You know, to say no to my way of life and my desires is one of the greatest heresies of our day. And yet, we have come to see how much our desires, how much of ourselves have been corrupted by sin. That same sin that was crouching like a lion, waiting to devour Cain. Godliness is recognising that as nice as that Disney movie sounds, you can't just follow your heart because the heart is deceitful. Jesus says it's where wickedness comes out from. Godliness is recognising that there is real sin in our lives. And we need to say no to that sin. But of course, godly living isn't just about saying no, it's also about saying yes. Yes to a self-controlled, upright and godly life in this present age. Upright here, it can mean righteous, you know, focus on doing the right things. It could also mean just, living justly. Likewise, godly means that we live God-oriented lives, saying yes to what God says yes to. But did you notice that third one? Self-controlled. Why is it, out of all the fruit of the Spirit, why is it that Paul picks that one? You know, why not love? Why not patience? Why not goodness? Why does he hone in on self-control? And I think it's because he's asking us or telling us that the grace of God is teaching us to say no and to say yes. And that requires self-control, doesn't it? It requires the ability to control ourselves. I find it really interesting that even though we live in a culture that is constantly saying yes to ourselves, we also live in a culture that's really obsessed, really obsessed with self-control, Um, I don't know if anyone else is like this, but I love wasting time on YouTube. I feel like it's my main wasting time thing that I do. And uh, everywhere I look on YouTube, probably just because the algorithms worked out, this is what I'm interested in, but anyway, everywhere I look on YouTube, I find channels that are devoted to how you can improve your life by being self-controlled. Okay, so, you know, getting atomic habits, 
regulating your emotions, intermittent fasting, avoiding procrastination, and I love fads. Like, I just get it on any fad that I can find. So I jump into these straight away. I'm like, yes, let's do this. This is going to revolutionize my life, and I'm just going to become the most amazing, productive, you know, best person that I can possibly be, and it never works out. But that's probably more me than the, 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 than, you know, the thing that I'm looking at. But we're really interested. We're really interested, aren't we, in self-control. How can I harness myself so that I can live an amazing life right now? I want you to know, that's not what godliness is. Because at the heart of godliness is recognizing our biggest need. It's not a new fasting program or some habit routine. Our biggest need is God himself. True self-control is not about whipping your body into shape or controlling your calendar in order to live an awesome life. It's about saying yes to what God calls you to. It's about living a life that isn't just about constantly saying yes to me, but that reorients their life so that I'm, it's no longer about me. It's about him. And I say no to my sinful desires and yes to him. Yes to God. That's self-control. Elsewhere, we could talk about it as walking by the Spirit. Of course, the Spirit helps us in this, doesn't he? Walking that path that we were truly made for. And so what's our workout plan? Well, it's saying no, and then it's saying yes. Very quickly, what's our goal? Uh, any personal trainer or dieting app, I assume, uh, will get you to focus on where you want to be at the end of all of this. Okay? You need to focus on a goal because that's what's going to motivate you. Maybe it's that you want to get really fit so that you can you know, make it to that sports team that you, want to, that you want to be in. Maybe you want to be able to fit into a dress. Maybe you want to complete a marathon. Maybe you want to just feel more confident at work. What's our goal in godliness? Well, it's interesting that Paul talks about us growing in godliness in this present age. Have a look at what Paul says. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What's God's goal for you in your life? Let me put it another way. Why did Jesus die for you? to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's God's vision statement for your life. Uh, To redeem uh, means to bring someone out of slavery and the language reminds us of the story of the Exodus. Um, I uh, am one of the people who... uh, want to help Megan in uh, kids' church. And uh, one of the things, I, I love to, can I just really recommend that you go and talk to Megan? Because kids, kids' ministry is one of the most fun things that you can do, uh, and one of the most important things as well. It's such a great thing. Uh, go, go talk to Megan. Um, I've done kids' ministry for a long time, and one of the things I've noticed is that the book of Exodus is such a great book uh, when you're doing kids' stuff, right? Because there's so many good stories the only problem is they're all in the first half of the book, 
right? You've got the first half of the book, that's amazing. The second half, it's kind of boring, at least for children. It's a little bit dull, okay? So the first half of the book, what do you have? You've got Moses in the basket, amazing craft right there. You've got... Um, you know, what, what's next? Uh, burning bush, another good craft, get the cellophane out. You've got, uh, <laughs> Megan's just nodding along there. Yeah. Um, you've got let my people go. You've got the plagues. You've got the Passover. You've got crossing the Red Sea. And then the Ten Commandments. And then, like, another half of the book just devoted to the law. The problem with that, though, is that if we think that the book of Exodus is just about the first half, we miss the whole point. Why did God save his people from Egypt? Why did he bring them out? Why did he rescue them from Pharaoh? What was the point of it all? It was to create a people for himself. He brought them out of Egypt so that they would stop belonging to Pharaoh and start belonging to him. That's why he gives them the law. Because he's saying, right, this now is how to live. This is the new life that I've saved you for. And friends, that's the purpose for our salvation as well. We were rescued from our sin. We were rescued from judgment. But we were rescued for a purpose. That we would be purified from all unrighteousness. That we will become a people that are Jesus, that, that belong to Jesus, that are his very own. That we will be a people eager to do what is good. And Paul says, that's our life while we wait for Jesus to return. Because when Jesus returns, that will be what happens perfectly. That will be the moment where we perfectly become his people living his way. That's God's big goal for this church, for the world. And so while we live in this present age, this is the life that we seek to live. Well, so what? What should we take away from all of this? Um, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I... Um, started going when I was a teenager to the youth group. And when I first started going to church, I didn't have uh, heaps of um, Christian role models in my life. You know, people to look up to to sort of go, oh, that's how you do it. Um, but there was one older guy in my church who was just the most humble and open-hearted, generous man I think I've ever met, even to this day. Um, he was quite a wealthy man. He ran a business, uh, but he always did the most menial tasks at church. He was always giving things away. He's incredibly wealthy. Uh, oh, not incredibly wealthy. He's fair, I grew up in the Southwest, so everyone seems pretty wealthy to me. But he was very wealthy in my eyes. But he used all of his money for other people and to do good. And when I met him, I just assumed, well, that must be just what people are like. Uh, that must be just what he's like. He must have just always been a generous guy, and that's nice. What a generous person. But one, of the, one of the great things about getting to know him was to hear his story and to find out that that wasn't what he was always like. That actually before he was a Christian, he and his family weren't generous at all. And they, in fact, they, they, they used their money, I guess, quite selfishly, just for themselves. And it showed me that actually Jesus had changed him. 
that he had gone from a life of greed to a life of generosity. Why? Because the grace of God. It taught him to say no to greed and yes to generosity. Because he belongs to Jesus and lives for him. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.